0: All right, welcome to episode 47 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. His name is John Kagg. He's the professor and chair of philosophy at the University of Massachusetts Lowell and a Miller scholar at the Santa Fe Institute. He just finished Six Souls, Healthy Minds: How William James Can Save Your Life, which was published with Princeton in Spring of 2020. He's also author and contributor along with Douglas Anderson to the American Pragmatism Chapter
1: How to Live a Good Life. Uh, Welcome, John.
2: Hi. Thanks for having us. Hey, Uh, John.
1: Hey, me. (laughs) Absolutely, man. So I guess, I mean, the first question is going to be the obvious one. So what do William James and the Pragmentists teach us about a good life? What does that mean to them?
2: Uh, That's a great great place to start. So, I mean, just to lay my uh, cards on the table here, um, I'm not always convinced that life is worth living, or I haven't always been. And um, I'm attracted to philosophers who sometimes have flirted with deep depression um, and deep anxieties. And William James, uh, born in 1844, died in 1910, was one of these philosophers. And he's the father of uh, American philosophy or American pragmatism, but also uh, empirical psychology in the United States, uh, publishing the Principles of Psychology in 1890. And the way that I think about James's philosophy James's pragmatism is that we actually have to think carefully about um we have to think carefully about the way that uh life (laughs)
1: that's life that's life
2: (laughs) so um what we have to be what we have to think about in terms of philosophy is that philosophy is in the business of helping us think through um the difficulties of life and not just as an arcane discipline Um, So when William James says that truth is to be judged by its practical consequences, that's like the sort of kernel of the pragmatic maxim. Mm -hmm. James is suggesting that truth isn't some pie in the sky, esoteric ideal, but something that can guide us in our everyday lives. Mm -hmm. Um, And we should understand truth as having practical implications in our everyday life. Now, James struggled with depression through his 20s and 30s. And what I think is particularly interesting with James is that when he asked the question, is life worth living? He gives an essay in 1895 um, entitled, is life worth living? James, unlike many philosophers who just say, yes, life is worth living. James, having struggled with depression says, maybe it depends on the liver. Okay. And I think uh, for a long time, I thought that this was just a cop out. But as I've grown older and hit close, and I'm 40 now, um, I, as I've grown older, I think that this might be the best answer to the question. Maybe, it depends on the liver, it's up to us to make life worth living.
0: Uh, right, essentially we're, we're the ones who give life meaning, right? So it is up to the, uh, the, the
1: liver, right? Mm-hmm. The kind think, of the observer, right? To sort of figure out what for them could be meaningful in a particular situation or in their particular circumstances. Is that the way James saw it? It, it is,
2: and he lived at a time in the 19th century where many of the places where people used to tap meaning, so the church, religion, education, politics, um, the, all of the places where one might have tapped meaning um, in the 18th and 17th centuries, began to come under attack. Mm-hmm. And so, what James had to do, along with existentialists like Frederick Nietzsche working around the same time, is he had to say, where where can human meaning come from without these traditional places of guidance? Mm -hmm. When he says, uh, maybe it's up to the liver, he's saying it's up to us to take charge of our life. And this is, I think, a very empowering move, especially for people who are suffering from depression and anxiety, primarily because um, when we suffer from anxiety or depression, we oftentimes feel out of control. And what James wanted to do was give that control back to us and say, we're never fully out of, life is never fully out of our control. We always have the choice. Um, And I think that that's really, for me, that's been a very meaningful moment.
1: Yeah. And that was the way I kind of saw it too, in terms of his conception of free will. So, um, something I kind of, um, I, I mean, I guess I wrote it a few times, but there was like a major piece that I once wrote in terms of like the blog that I write about kind of like when I experienced depression and the severe, I guess, suicidality. So in, in terms of kind of what you say about James or what, kind of you wrote about his history, there was like a moment that I had that was very similar to kind of the moment that he had and the moment that you had, which I mean, to me was probably, it was really fascinating, but I'm sure it was probably ubiquitous in some sense. So there was like this time where I remember, um, so I was like in California and I was going up like this mountain, right? Which, I mean, I guess it was more of a cliff. It wasn't like this huge kind of terrain, but even still, it was pretty high up. So I'm kind of going up there with my friend And I'm like just kind of stumbling up there because for me it was really hard to get up. So because I've never really climbed a cliff or a mountain before. So I kind of go up there and then so my friend says to me, so he says, look, I'm going to go up to like this higher part, right? Do you want to come with me or do you want to stay here? And so I decided to actually stay where I was because where he was going was just like really high up and I was like really anxious about it. So I kind of I'm staying there and I'm looking kind of over the precipice of it. And like, so at that time, I guess this was like the apex of my kind of suicidal thinking. And I finally kind of understood that I had this choice that I had to make. Where I was like, okay, so, so far I've been living my life kind of one foot in and one foot out. Whereas on the one hand, I was kind of like really upset with the way circumstances were and I wasn't really kind of taking any responsibility for it. And then on the other hand, I was like, oh, well, like, you know, if anything, I could just continue to, or, you know, to think about kind of this way out or to even potentially take it. But I wasn't really doing anything. I was sort of being more passive about it, just, you know, kind of existence as a whole. And then I finally came to this place where I kind of looked over the precipice and I said to myself, okay, you really have a decision, right? and I don't want to keep living the way I have been and I don't want to just keep going in such a way where I'm again one foot in and one foot out so I told myself look if you're gonna not do this here if you're gonna really just decide to take the reins of your life then it's gonna be up to you to make it a good one or as good as it could possibly be and so in reading your book right especially the chapter that you had looking over the Brooklyn Bridge I really identified with that because I feel like in some way you and I obviously had that moment but I think it's a moment that a lot of us come to where it's like we think about life and the responsibility that comes along with it and we really have to ask ourselves like to what extent are we actually willing to live and to what extent are we actually willing to sort of be our authentic selves or willing to actually take the reins of our lives because at the end of the day nobody else is really going to do it for us and that was really the main message I took away from James.
2: No, I think that's uh, I mean that's one of the main messages that I take away as well. I mean James said to his friend Benjamin Blood um, he said no human being has ever thought carefully about life until they have tarried with suicide. And um, this is very similar to Albert Camus' comment at the beginning of Nipotisipus, where he says there is but one serious philosophical question, and that is suicide. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
2: And um, most of my students, when I first say that to them, think, oh my gosh, this is so depressing. But what, um, But what actually I think Camus and James are suggesting is that many times in our everyday life, we just take um, the value of life for granted, and in moments of great crisis, maybe like even the crisis that we're going through right now with COVID-19, um, there is a chance to reevaluate life's worth. People who have struggled with the idea of suicide um, and fi- found themselves on the pre- precipice, oftentimes go, can reimmerse themselves into life with a sort of sort of added vigor. And I think that one of the ideas, I mean, when you when you interview people who have uh, attempted suicide, one of their thoughts is immediately once they jump, they have almost o- ubiquitous, overwhelming regret. They think, oh, my gosh. Um, and when they you know hit the water and if they survive, um, oftentimes, I mean, th- th- there are repeat attempts. That is true. But at the same time, Sometimes you think, if I can make that choice, then I can also choose things about my life. Radical things. I can make radical decisions. Um, And I think it's very similar. I I mean, I'm thinking about this. You talked about going up to the top of the mountain. John, the naturalist, John Muir, um, uh, describes a situation when he's climbing the mountains, which is very similar to you. And I'll read just a very small snippet from his journal. he said, he got to the top of this precipice and he said, my doom appeared fixed, I must fall. There would be a moment of bewilderment and then a lifeless rumble down the one general precipice to the glacier below. But, he says, in this moment, suddenly, my trembling muscles became firm again and every rift and claw in the rock was seen as though through a microscope. Uh-huh. My limbs moved with a positiveness and precision with which I seemed to have nothing at all to do. I have been born again, aloft upon wings. And I think that there's this idea that when you actually look into the abyss, Nietzsche says the abyss looks back and sort of can beckon. But there's also this way in which um, when you get to the precipice and come to this uh, moment of decision, uh, you can also choose to climb or hang on longer. And I think that that's what James' maybe at least has helped me do in moments when, I mean, James calls it sick-souledness. uh when my sick soul uh sort of speaks loudly to me i i, I sort of look at James's maybe and hold on so
1: yeah and what was so cool about that when you described kind of the moment of um, when you described that moment of kind of being um, I think I don't remember exactly your your verbiage for it but I think you said it was sort of like the that he felt sort of being lifted up or kind of lifted or would sort of there was this vital force underlying him and that was actually the same way that I felt on that cliff like I mean it was definitely obviously me making the decision but I felt like there was some vitality that re-emerged in some way that wasn't there for a really long time I mean I guess some people could describe it as divine or supernatural intervention, but the way I kind of saw it was exactly as you described, John, as a sort of will to live. And in that moment, and I think for a long time afterwards, the, the kind of will to live superseded death, right? Or, you know, kind of what Freud would have termed the death instinct.
2: I think, I mean, one, one thing that's interesting about American pragmatism is that I think if you look at the founders of American pragmatism, pragmatism is usually poo-pooed as this sort of crass instrumentalism. It's sort of like truth is just what works, get on with life.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And But if you look at the founders of American pragmatism, particularly William James and C.S. Purse, both Purse and James struggled with deep existential questions and deep depressions and suicidality. And um, they both have unique ways of answering the question, is life worth living? James, I think, tends more toward the sort of Promethean individualism or the radical freedom move where it's up to us to take the reins of life, whereas I think C.S. Perse, um emphasizes uh, what you just described as a sort of—it feels almost a sort of divine intervention. Peirce calls it continuity. He says that um, oftentimes when we're feeling the pull of, um, the, you know, the pull of the abyss, one way to combat that is to realize that we are already deeply connected so we're not ever alone, that we're deeply connected to our surroundings, to our social and political order, even if we feel disconnected and isolated, we're we're connected. Uh, Peirce didn't necessarily live this out in his own sort of hermit-like life or existence, but his philosophy, uh, his uh, philosophy of... Continuity, cynicism, which he calls the philosophy of continuity, and then also um, agapasm, which is the philosophy of love. Uh, these, these were hopes for Peirce uh, to get reconnected to the world.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you say a little bit more about how him and James differed in their sort of ways of dealing with depression? Yeah, I
2: think so. Um, I mean, James was brought up. Um, James was brought up in a very vibrant social sphere. Um, it suited his personality quite well at times. Uh, he was one of those introverts who was also gregarious. In other words, he could be the life of the party, but then he would very quickly do an Irish goodbye and just mm. like just flake out and, <laughs> and leave because he would he'd had enough uh, socialization, you know, social social time. Yeah. So, um, so James, I think. Um, had his fill of feeling connected and, um, and was always worried that social life was stifling his individuality or his creativity or his freedom. Purse, I think, in contrast, was never gregarious, was never the life of the party, and, or, or rather he was at certain moments, but at the same time he could just be absolutely impossible. Um, and that's why he never uh, had, had a sort of formal academic appointment. Uh, James tried to get him to Harvard. Nobody wanted him at Harvard. Nobody wanted him at Johns Hopkins. And so Peirce was always the outcast and always had a desire to re, regain or to reconnect with the social world or the cosmic order. Whereas James, however, is saying, hey, I think that what we need to do is actually emphasize our individuality or our freedom in order to re- reclaim our lives. Uh, and I think that this is, I'm making a distinction that I think is um, one of emphasis, not one of absolute black and white. I mean, James and Perth shared a lot of similarities about their de- desire not to live in a deterministic world, uh, not to live in a world of lock- lockstep order, to think about the possibilities and chances of life. Um, James, and, James and Perth agreed on this. But I think when it comes to the emphasis about the importance of community, the importance of feeling connected, I think Peirce and uh, his colleague Josiah Royce um, push more in the direction of community. And I think James pushed more in the direction of uh, sort of individuality.
1: Right. Hmm. And what was so interesting about that is it seemed like they were both coming from two different extremes, where James was super deterministic in this thinking and kind of very isolated or uh, not isolated, I'm sorry, very sort of, um, I guess he had a sense of being kind of intertwined with the order of things, too much so, whereas for Purse, it seemed like he was too individualistic. And so they were both kind of trying to meet in the middle. James was kind of trying to establish the sort of individuality that he probably perceived he didn't have initially. And Purse in the other case was actually trying to finally feel like as though he were a part of a community, which he might have not felt
2: that's exactly it I think that, that that's the case I think that's even more the case with Royce Royce being an idealist Roy he's a lesser-known philosopher but he was James's next- door neighbor and close friend and they would argue constantly about the value of community versus the value of individualism they um, constantly for, for about 15 years uh, between 1895 and, and James's death in 1910 they would just
3: argue constantly about it.
0: Uh, what about the integration of Peirce's view and James's view? Mm-hmm. It, isn't there an answer somewhere in the middle as opposed to just arguing individualism versus community? Mm-hmm. Maybe there's times to be individualistic, there's times to be community oriented. I don't know, what, what, do, you, what do you guys think?
2: Mm-hmm. I mean I think so um, one of the things that I've tried to uh, give to my students and i point out um, in teaching American philosophy is that James and Peirce are coming out of the Transcendental Movement, um, the, trans- the movement of American Transcendentalism, and Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson, is probably most famous for his essay, Self-Reliance, which is this Promethean individualism, this you know radical freedom. But what Emerson intended was this very famous essay that fits with our ideas about freedom, American ideas about freedom very well, uh, Emerson intended that essay to be tempered with another essay called Compensation, and Compensation is the you know it seems like the antithetical idea, which is no matter how free we are, we're always operating in a wider social, political, and cosmic order that we're always connected. And I think that you know, I think that uh, Emerson, more so than or uh, James, really give us. Um, both of these things, as you were saying, and I think rightly so,
1: right. And you mentioned before that where uh, you mentioned and I think the how to live book, that in terms of the way Emerson perceived it was that essentially that even though there was a i guess um what was it? It was um sort of oh it was i think about conformity that's sort of what we want is radical kind of non-conformity but the idea is to kind of make sure that you kind of accept that radical non-conformity is in itself a bad thing right so if we're too far up or too extreme so how did he kind of make sense of these extreme concepts how did he put them together
2: well i mean i think that um i think for emerson one of the issues is is that he sees conventional life the sort of life we're living through right now, as always, threatening the sort of individual creativity of a person. He says, um, for for non, you know, that that the world whips us for our nonconformity. Um, he also says that it's one of the most difficult things in life is remaining yourself when all everything in your society is trying to push you in the opposite direction. Right. Um, and so Emerson uh, advocated. Um, I think it, a, a sort of um, stepping back from the conventional world um, at crucial moments, and stepping back into nature. So this idea that when we're too too much with the world, the sort of you know the conventional world, we always have the ability to walk in the woods, to go. I mean, Henry David Thoreau's. Uh, sort of trip to Walden was inspired by Emerson's nature okay? his, um, his uh, collection of essays Nature and, um, and I think that what, what um, these thinkers, all four Emerson, Thoreau, Purse and James wow. advocate is a type of uh, shuttling back and forth between the community and um, solitude which is different than simply being lonely. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I think that there's this shuttling or this dialectical movement that happens uh, between community and isolate, and, you know, um, solitude. Yeah. That, so that's one thought. Um, he Also, I think Emerson and Thoreau would advocate a type of uh, cynicism, cynicism being a very old uh, folk philosophical position, not modern cynicism like nothing is good, but old ancient cynicism says that civilization at times corrupts us and doesn't make us better. And that what we need to do is step back a bit from, um, from, from the hustle and bustle of everyday life. Mm-hmm. Which, frankly, when, when Henry David Thoreau says, he says, "'Tis good to be sick sometimes." What I think he's saying is that it's okay to convalesce, to step back from the world, and to reassess what your life means right. um, and I think that's an important move especially I mean uh, world like we're living through right now Yeah
1: and sort of I think the way kind of um, modern sort of conceptions or modern conceptions of depressions from let's say from cognitive science to what they're kind of seeing is that there's a possibility that depression has a significant utility for a person so the idea now is or the thinking now I guess is um, pretty much when it comes to depression that what a person is doing in the ruminations they're essentially problem-solving so if we're kind of like let's say self isolating uh, we're kind of getting away from the world we're thinking of all of the ways that we can resolve the things that are making us sad so unfortunately what happens sometimes is that the rumination might become a bit too intense. And so the person turns to like avoidance tactics where like, let's say, I don't know, they'll drink, do drugs. They might even play video games, anything kind of that to kind of escape from that. But the thing is, if you actually sometimes stay within the depression, and I would say most of the time you would have somebody helping you through it, what would happen is the person can actually resolve what it is that's making them sad. Because sometimes what happens is a depression it's sort of there and it kind of percolates a bit as a person goes through life but then there's some sort of tipping point that sends the person into this kind of deep downward spiral and if you kind of start talking to them about it they'll tell you well it's this particular trigger or it's this particular event but mm-hmm. as you go through their history you kind of get the sense or you get the picture of well no this person has actually been pretty sad for a really long time and this was actually the tipping point and what they need more than anything is not to sort of um let's say evade a particular trigger but they might actually need to reestablish their whole framework for a meaning of life. So the way we kind of conceptualize depression is, I think, very sort of antithetical to the way depression might actually be, or the way it might actually be realistically conceived as this thing that can actually be a really helpful tool. And I think, um, just tying this back to James, I think that's, I, he didn't intend for this to happen, but in terms of his understanding of free will, it can easily be conceived of as, let's say, this sort of um, precipitator, where because he was experiencing this severe depressive episode and feeling really cynical and feeling that the world is purely deterministic through that he was able to conceptualize free will and then through that he was able to get himself mm-hmm. out of it so in a way the depression right obviously in the short term was this really terrible thing that happened to him but in the long term I wonder how his life would have been had he not had that severe episode which obviously lasted for the kind of vast majority of his young adulthood
2: right I yeah. mean I think it's spot on I mean I think about uh, Frederick Nietzsche's comment right around the same time that James is writing where Nietzsche says I must thank my worst years for the, my worst, my sickest years, for they have allowed me to become who I am, uh, namely a philosopher. Mm-hmm. Um, and James, I think, has a similar position. I think what's interesting is, is, it, is that in 1821, Emerson, it, so he'd be 18 at that point, wrote in his journal. He said, "I am sick." And so uh, Emerson was sick during this time. He said, um, "I am sick. If I die, what will become of me?" And then he says, one of the good things about temporary illness is that it allows us to reassess our lives. And, um, and I think that that is the case with depression, or that's one of the potentialities with depression is that, and anxiety for that matter. Um, one thing that we have to worry about, however, is that, um, many of the, coping mechanisms that we have when it comes to deal with depression and anxiety um, allow us to mask uh, what is actually happening with us. Um, So I'm thinking a little bit about this uh, story from the Bible which uh, the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, again 1840s, same time. Uh, It's the story of the demoniac or the demon, the demon or the possessed. This guy in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, is sitting, cutting himself with stones. um, And Jesus approaches him and Jesus says, let me help exercise you. Let me help you spread the demons. And this guy says, go away from me. Leave me be with my stones. Leave me be with, you know, this way of like. You know, you can think about a cutter or somebody who's self-flagellating or an ascetic. Uh He says, just leave me be. And Jesus doesn't leave him be. He goes and he exercises the demon. Um, But what's interesting to me is that the very things that we're most afraid of, like being cured, for example, or being... you know having our stones taken from us well we all have distractions many of us have distractions like little stones that we cut ourselves with mm-hmm. work for us but they give us something to do they keep us distracted and um what jesus does to the demoniac and i'm not a religious person but this story makes sense to me is uh he says, what would your life be like without your little stones and this is the same thing if you go up to an anorexic uh, and you say and I'm speaking from experience here if you go up to an anorexic and you say um, What would happen if you actually had a normal relationship with food?
3: Um,
2: like what would your life look like? Well, it would look radically different Okay, and that difference is terrifying. Okay, and that that's oftentimes what's, what leads us into this demonic situation where The potential, the potential to leave, or the potential to be cured, is almost more terrifying than the actual, you know, bloody stones that you're using on Mm yourself. So I think that this is something that uh, existentialists like Kierkegaard and Nietzsche are aware of, but also one thing that James is pointedly aware of too.
3: Yeah,
0: and so, so, um, how could somebody use that as as a way to? Remedy their own depression like for, for example in my personal experience there, I did go through a severe depression and uh, For me, I I didn't I, so what happened is I became this is I'll be general I became so uh, depressed that It's not like I wanted to hold on to my old habits and um, Keep cutting myself with the stone so, so to speak uh, the depression became so intense that i wanted to pick any alter like an alternative to that Uh, the pain was too great so i was already at the point where i I wanted to choose an action uh, that would lead me somewhere else give some sort of other result like uh, change the variable in the equation therefore change the result of the equation no matter what the variable was that i was changing as long as i was changing some kind of variable in my day-to-day actions i was then uh, sure that it would take me away from wherever I was. Um, what would uh, either of you maybe say to somebody who is in uh, grips of depression but is still cutting themselves with that
2: rock, so to speak?
1: Oh, that's a great question for John about habits.
2: Yeah. I mean, James James is James weighs them perfectly, I think, here. So he says that we create habits. Where, I mean, after Aristotle... James says we are habitual creatures, creatures of habit, and uh, what we do is that we, in our actions, our bodies get acculturated and get attuned to acting in a particular way, um, and usually our habits create heuristic or shorthand ways of negotiating the world, and they're quite quite adaptive, but we can also lead into habits that are uh, self-destructive or disempowering or stultifying, deadening, okay? And James is aware of both of those um, aspects of being being human beings. James, however, says something interesting in, in the Principles of Psychology and in his what he calls the talk to Teachers. He says, "Do something difficult every day just for practice." And I think that when you are depressed, you do not want to get out of bed. For example, that was my my that's my situation. Like that's the last thing you want to do. And James says, do something difficult. Get up and do, I, in my case, do a sun salutation, a yoga sun salutation. Or just look up. Or go outside and look up. Okay? Open, your, open your throat, James suggests in the uh, Principles of Psychology. And this is in tune with James's idea about the emotions. Uh, it's called the James Lang Theory of Emotions, which anticipates a lot of cognitive uh, CBT. Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, which says that our emotions are not internal states divorced from action, but rather um, a product of or a feedback loop of our actions so that it's not the case that I smile because I am happy, but rather that I am happy in part because I smile. And James says, get out. It might be difficult, but you fake it till you make it, okay? So you get out and you act. And then notice that it changes your internal or inner life, your emotional life, psychological life. And this has been this has been a suggestion that I have taken from James and used basically since I was twenty one. Right <laughs> so, yeah.
0: um, have you ever heard of uh, the winner effect? Um, a, a psychologist named Doctor Not I forget if he's a Doctor. <coughs> pardon, sorry, Ian Roberts. He he wrote that book. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, yeah, I, I took, uh, so I guess just to highlight what the winner effect yeah. is, mm-hmm. um, it's when, when you experience a win or a success, uh, I guess I'll use an example to highlight this. Say, um, so Mike Tyson, uh, he went to uh, jail once upon a time. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget why it's okay. We don't have to bring up that, mm-hmm. but when he got out of jail, he was no longer the world champion, yeah. uh, someone else was. And so his boxing coach, um, in order to kind of get Mike back into the swing of things, mm-hmm. uh, he put him up against what, uh, they call a tomato can. Mm-hmm. Do you know what a tomato can is? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a tomato can for anyone who doesn't know, it's, uh, it's a boxer who Mike would be guaranteed to beat. And so what, what was the idea of this? It was so that, uh, Mike could uh, beat someone uh, very easily this way could kind of get back into the rhythm of winning. Mm-hmm. And then when you begin to win, you start to build a momentum uh, that kind of uh, builds up your uh, own internal uh, neurochemistry, uh, dopamine, uh, acetylcholine, GABA, and you can look this all up if anything. And uh, these, these wins kind of uh, make you more uh, confident. They lead to more wins and it kind of takes you in an upward spiral. So what what's fascinating about um, the winner effect is if, if you know what it is, you can actually, for example, doing a sun salutation, right? Say to you in your own uh, world that if every time you do something like that, even if it was hard, you consider that to be a, a win, let's say. Like you've done something that you said you were going to do that you committed to. Now that you did it, you've essentially uh, because you've adhered to your commitments, you've then been able to uh, be sure that you can then continue to follow your commitments, uh, build up your emotions from that, uh, then do those tasks again, maybe even do even harder tasks, uh, then gain even more confidence, maybe then take on other actions, maybe then also build up your emotions again, and then that affects all these areas of your life. Uh, I, I am being general here, but, there is a way to kind of use this to your advantage, um, in order to take yourself from a low place and kind of bring yourself up. Right. Technically you could use it at whatever s- state you're in. Right. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I like it personally. Yeah. If you're coming from somewhere down low, that's a great way to kind of start to build yourself up.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. And so John, for you, can you tell us about, um, if you're obviously okay with that when you were younger, right? How your mom, who was a, Pretty much a counseling psychologist herself. Um, how is it that she kind of instilled that form of behaviorism in you?
2: Yeah, sure. Well, my mom, my mom, uh, my mom's parenting was basically uh, using existential psychotherapy to get me out of my get me out of funks all the time, get me out of tough positions, and also using CBT. So I mean, what she said, I was a I was an incredibly awkward child. Yep. Um And. My imaginary friends were better friends than my normal friends Um, and I think I say in the book in six souls healthy minds how William James can save save your life I say something to the effect that like I was a I was not a thin child and um, I wasn't very good at the games that other kids would play And my mom said to me, she noticed that my imaginary friends were occupying more and more of my time. And she said to me, she goes, I know you don't like recess. And I know that you don't like the other kids particularly. But can you just fake it for a little while and see how you feel about it? And I said, what do you mean fake it, mom? And she goes, well, can you just act like you enjoy yourself? Like playing these games? Can't you just act? which seems like a you know a very inauthentic, inauthentic thing to say, mm-hmm. um, but a little bit of a little bit of uh, faking it till you make it actually turned out that I could actually form friend friendships, mm-hmm. and then those friendships have a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy nature to them, um, and as you say, a certain momentum. And my mom helped me sort of. Uh, turn that fakery, that initial fakery, into some really authentic friendships. And I think that that's possible. And I also think that there's an issue with any type of relationship or any type of love affair that you have where the initial stages are farcical. Um, my, my friend Clancy Martin, who wrote um, Love and Lies for, for our stars and drew A couple years ago, says that in any love affair there is an initial lie. And what he means by this is, you're not really sure if you love this person. You're going to take the leap of faith, okay? You're going to you're going you're going to fake it, okay? And you're going to fake it like your life depends on it because sometimes it does. And James's will to believe is something very similar. He says, "My first act of the my first act of will is to affirm that I have free will." Um, sort of bootstrapping yourself. Now you can call that lying or being inauthentic, but I think that when you're forming relationships or when you're forming friendships, um, I think that there there are moments of very valuable dissimulation where you act in certain ways and you do it on a type of faith, a raw faith, rather than a full knowledge. And then James says that in these cases where proof, empirical proof is not just, you know, empirical proof can't get you there, like in cases of love or in cases of faith, in cases of being moral, you just fake it, okay? And then, and then, the world changes in such a way that it <laughs> uh,
0: Yeah. So I just noticed. Uh, are you having a mic issue? Yeah. I uh, sorry, uh, J- uh, John. We're not able to hear you actually. Really? Oh no, oh, it's yeah, it just
1: got cut off. Sometimes that happens. Yeah, I, I think I think it's okay now. Yeah, so um, what kind of what I'm taking away from that is, and I think it's very similar to kind of the beginning of the winner effect, is that pretty much like when a person begins any sort of endeavor, they're never going to know for certain what the outcome is going to be, right? Which, right, and it's like, which kind of, I guess, is sort of, it's a double-edged sword. Obviously, there's intense anxiety connected to that and sort of taking that leap and beginning, right? Just like with the winner effect, you have to start. But then on the other hand, it's not sort of this, um, I guess, kind of mundane, boring life where you pretty much can predetermine every single outcome that's going to, or every single outcome of any of your attempts and so what I love so much about James is that I don't even think at least from my interpretation that it's so much about whether or not free will is true or not it's literally more about how effective is it in your life and how kind of helpful is it to you living a better and a good life and so the way like I don't know how long ago it was but there was a part of me especially when I was kind of in school especially when I was in graduate school I was really concerned with like absolute truths and finding you know this kind of the kernel of everything But then as I kind of started getting into just psychotherapy and kind of like what it is that actually helps people and how to obviously alleviate particular symptoms and just help people live better lives, what I kind of found is that the truth itself is not as important as the kind of truths that we tell ourselves or the partial truths that we tell ourselves. So it's not so much I think that the truth can be a lie or an outlier lie obviously because I mean that's not helpful for anybody especially if they find out that it is. But what I like about James so much is that in some sense free will is at least a partial truth, right? I mean... The idea is that it has a consequence that makes sense in reality. And that consequence is a positive consequence, meaning that it actually has the effect that he was looking for. So what I liked about that is it's very similar to what we do in psychotherapy as a whole. We try to sort of point people to truths that are more helpful. And they are truths, right? They might not necessarily be the bigger picture, but I think it's okay because sometimes the bigger picture isn't absolutely necessary. So for James, what I love about his conception of free will is that it's not determined in a sense of being conclusive. But what it is, is it's something that's incredibly useful. And and it actually literally helps you lead a, a at least a somewhat fulfilling life, a life, and it can kind of save you, and it could take you out of your circumstances. And so, in some sense, right, James kind of took this, I guess, what seemed to have been a kind of foregone conclusion, right, and he literally through a conception, through literally free will, he turned it into something almost completely different from what it was. And I thought that that was amazing, or the most amazing aspect of pragmatism in his philosophy.
2: I think so too. I mean, I think that um, you're really articulating an important aspect of american pragmatism which i think oftentimes gets overlooked because we don't i mean we don't think that philosophy is intimately connected to psychology anymore
3: mm-hmm.
2: okay um but during james era you have to remember that james started one of the first empirical psychology laboratories in the philosophy department mm-hmm. <laughs> at okay so that they, they were i mean they were integrated in a way that we, today in our contemporary age, have, have forgotten, or risk forgetting, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I mean, I also think about James, um, I'll just be a, I'll be a little personal about this, where um, there's, there are ways when you form habits that I think are very, you know, very vibrant habits, um, like in the talks to teachers, he describes this group of women, this Norway, these Norwegian women who, uh, take up skiing to take up Nordic skiing. And he notices the, the emotional disposition between before the skiing, where they were quote, fireside tabby cats of women versus when they were, they took up skiing and they just turned into these sort of mythical, incredibly strong individuals. Um, now, w- one thought about this is that there are moments when you, when those activities that you've come to depend on, really fail you. And I'm going to share something. I'm going to share something. So um, a month ago, Friday, it's now Sunday, but two days ago, marked the month, a month before, I had open heart surgery. I'm forty. Yeah.
3: So
2: I'm very active. Um, or I was very active, and I was running on a treadmill, and I had a massive heart attack. And they took me to the hospital and gave me open-heart surgery. I have a massive scar still. Um, And um, all of a sudden, all of the habits that you depend on to give yourself some sort of an emotional ballast or emotional stability are stripped away from you. And I think at these moments, I think uh, James has an answer, which I think is really, really nice, which is even when you are in a compromised state, even when you are no longer able to run or do what you sort of, the ableism, you know, go and do something, even when you don't have that ability, if you are conscious, okay, you still have the ability to alter your situations in a small way. And that that small alteration can be meaningful. In other words, um, can I do? Can I make? Can I choose actions even in my compromised state that give me a sense of meaning, and a sense of freedom, and a sense of creativity? And James says that most human beings can do that. And uh, James was an ableist, unfortunately, but he. But I take him to say, do what you can. See if you can do something difficult, even if it's moving one finger or another finger. Or, you know, in my case, I, I take it as a win that I can lay on my side mm-hmm. without pain, or that I can get up and use the bathroom by myself. Like these, these, these are like little wins. And I think James is all about the little wins when it comes to being in a compromised state.
1: Oh, that's really amazing.
2: Yeah,
0: and also what's, what's fascinating is without, without the ability... To, so, for example, anyone who's right now uh, being locked down, right? Uh, anyone who's staying in their homes. Uh, for example, I myself um, loved going to the gym uh, routinely um, almost every single day. For me, uh, the treadmill was uh, liberation. Okay, because when I first discovered running... Uh, and also uh, pairing it with music,
3: mm-hmm.
0: I would get into such feelings of elation, and uh, I mean not an ecstasy, but it was definitely high up there. You it were in the fall. Uh, Yeah, I would get into a flow state, mm-hmm. right? And uh, then that became addictive, and so I love that habit, and I've started. Do- I would do it all the time, and uh, but now in this sort of situation, I mean, I suppose I could work out at home,
3: mm-hmm.
0: but uh, it's it's definitely it's not the same. Right. And then, uh, I was thinking, okay, so what, what can I do with that? Um, and I was thinking, okay, so that brought me back to flow. I was thinking, okay, what other sort of activity or what, what's something else I can do that can sort of put me in that state or what kind of, uh, win could I look for that could still, uh, bring me there. Right. And I think that it's it's valuable, um, John, what, what you're saying actually, which is looking looking for those wins. Um, th- those things, I think, especially during this time, are are the most valuable things that we can look for. And at the same time, what's fascinating—I'm sorry—I didn't mention this before—is um, James's uh, belief in free will, the choice that there, you know, to believe that there is free will. Right. Is fascinating too, because what that does is that puts you at the cause of things as opposed to at the effect. Right. It's, it's almost, it's not like he's saying you're responsible for everything. That's a different sort of idea, uh-huh. but that it reminds me of that in, in the sense of you it's by choosing to believe in free will that you, you can, uh, give meaning as you will or choose to do whatever action it gives you more sovereignty, right? And that sovereignty is very powerful. Yes. E- even people like Sam Harris, or uh, there's this French uh, neuroscientist. I think his name's Moran Surf. Mm-hmm. Um, people like them, they'll espouse that there is no free will, mm-hmm. and probably make very convincing arguments for mm-hmm. it. And I would say, even if there isn't, going back to James, mm-hmm. believing that there is puts you in a in a in a more advantageous position right which i think is still valid even if there is no free will
1: right And I mean, John, I would also want to hear your thoughts on this, but from my kind of understanding, just of, and obviously, look, I'm not, you know, a professional philosopher. This is not a question that I can answer fully, but the way I kind of see free will is that it's not one or the other. It's not really that it's either determinism or free will. The idea is it's essentially something in the middle where you have a bunch of different variables and you kind of place them together. And obviously there's an outcome. And if you remove one or even several of the variables, the outcome changes. So the way I kind of think that people misinterpret determinism is I think the way James saw it initially. where it was pretty much seen as that these outcomes or my life is inevitable. That because I'm depressed now, therefore it means I will be depressed forever. But that's not really kind of, I think, the reality. Because somewhere in the middle, if something intervenes, obviously, they can kind of shift course, right? Mm-hmm. Does that necessarily mean that determinism isn't real? I would say no, because in some sense, it's still determined. Because you just have another variable that's put into place that might have not been there before. So the way I kind of think of it as is that what James shows us is like, um, it's like a half-truth. That he's saying that there's a free will and that we can exercise it in and it can have an effect. It might not be necessarily the bigger picture, but what I love about his argument is that he says, "Look, as human beings, you're never going to get the bigger picture anyway. So if this works, why not just subscribe to it? Why not do something that's going to have significant practical consequences?"
2: So I mean,
3: I think that
2: a lot of contemporary, uh, sorry, okay. um, a lot of uh, contemporary philosophers have discussed whether James, what's called a compatibilist, whether mm-hmm. A, whether determinism and free will can go together in a particular way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm, I'm more of a mind to think that James thinks that there's chance, possibility, and freedom all the way down mm-hmm. in the physical aspects of the world. When he looks out into the universe, he wants to see a universe of possibilities and sudden dog barkings that you couldn't anticipate. Mm-hmm. That, that there are chances Okay, right. and that chance, and famously, James' James's friend, L.A. Lyman Cabot, said, chance is always our chance. In other words, metaphysical or ontological chance, the, the chances of the world, yeah. create openings for us to have our opportunities. And, um, and, those, and, and the world, with its chances, are fitted to us such that we can actually make good on those chances. And I think that's a really nice way of thinking about compatibilism in a way that typically is not discussed. Right. Um, I also think, that just to go back to the issue about how free are we and what's the value of thinking through freedom, James writes, he says, most people live, whether physically, intellectually, or morally, in a very restricted circle of their potential being. They make very small use of their possible consciousness. And of their soul's resources in general, and I think that this is a point where James is admonishing us to say, "Hey, we can be more, we can see more, we can do more, we can like enlarge, enlarge your scope or enlarge your angle and the uh, angle of vision just a little bit." And also ask yourself, "Why am I in this restricted scope to begin with? Um, what am I afraid of? Um, what, like, why? Why am I?" constantly you know, insulating myself from these other experiences that i might have and i think james is very good for us especially when we feel all closed in like we do on a sunday afternoon social isolation moments
3: yeah.
2: says he says think think about think about ways that you can expand your scope um, so that's something i take away
1: and why I think James is, I guess, the ultimate psychotherapist is because he's very careful in not blaming anyone for their circumstances. He's sort of, it seems like, differentiating, right? He's differentiating between sort of the former and the latter. He's saying, look, this is where you are now, and what I'm saying is that if you start taking responsibility, this is where you can potentially go. But nowhere is he saying, oh, well, you know what? You're actually the reason why your circumstances are what they are. So, I mean, this is pretty much kind of where American psychology is now. We try to sort of differentiate between kind of responsibility and sort of blame, we say that, okay, you can't blame anybody for the circumstances that they're in because, first of all, a lot of what kind of we go through is out of our control. And the other thing is there's a lot that we don't know. So already our knowledge is incredibly limited just in terms of being a human being. But what he says is that now that I'm going to sort of get you through this and I'm going to teach you these tools, right, it would have to be your responsibility to use them to obviously take yourself forward. And I love that. I really, really love that about his ideas.
3: I also
2: think, I mean, James, in the later portions of his life, um, has, have moments of self-awareness where he looks at other people they, there's this case where he's going through um, the sort of back country of Appalachia in, in North Carolina uh-huh. and he uh-huh. looks at these houses that to his, you know, he uses this Boston Brahmin. and he comes out of very rich Cambridge, Harvard aspect and he looks at these houses in North Carolina and he says, at first he thinks, oh my gosh, these things are so hideous and ugly and then he thinks to himself, you've got to be kidding me. I have no idea what these people's lives are like. That, And he calls this a certain blindness in human beings, this mistake in thinking that we know what other people are going through when in fact we haven't a clue. Right. James says, um, maybe we should reserve judgment about other people and just let get as close as you can to thinking that their lives might be as vital and vibrant as our own, which is a very hard um, thing to sort of get get yourself to think through because we're naturally, we have this, both James and David Foster Wallace says that we have this natural default setting of being deeply self-centered. And, that, you know, like, um, and that what James is urging us to do is to get over that self-centeredness. Um, if you look at another one of his essays from the later portions of his life, he says... Uh, This is from an uh, essay that is questionably titled, The Morally Equivalent of War, um, The Moral Equivalent of War. James says, he suggests in this essay, he says, you know what we should do? We should have mandatory conscription of all of the, quote, gilded youth, Uh um, and send them off to the mines, to the industrial complexes, to work for three years to get the sort of, um, to get the sort of idealism knocked out of them. That's James's first idea. But then the second idea, I think, is that it might give us some sense about what other people's lives are like. Now, it's not simply playing at, you know, I mean, if you say, oh, I'm just playing at going to the mines or going to the factories, that's a strange and warped romanticism. But, um... But James actually th- thinks that if you can walk a mile in someone else's shoes, it actually might change your life a little bit, or at least your internal ability to see others' lives as real. Yeah, um, so I think that that's an interesting point. Um, so
1: Alan, what's the quote that you always use? Seek first to understand. Oh,
0: uh, seek first to understand, then to be understood. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, yeah, I could see how that goes along with James's view. Yeah, we, we would, um I mean, we would benefit from being able to try to understand someone else's perspective or to assume that their perspective is just as valid as ours. Right. And, yeah, there's there's tremendous value to that. And as John said, of course, as you're saying, it's it's an incredibly difficult thing to do because naturally we have that disposition of being selfish. Right. Or self-centered, rather. but. When, when you can see that the other person uh, is is not that different from you they have their own challenges that they're going through their own uh, uh, difficulties their things happening in relationships with other people um, prob- maybe maybe even uh, tragedies that we don't know about right. Th- that could have happened maybe yesterday or a week ago or something like that right. and uh, being being aware that any one of these things is is, Possible lets you not uh, you know create any harsh judgments about another person. It lets you be able to see them more as as they are, as opposed to looking at them through some sort of projection or right. some sort of um, uh, yeah. By, by by creating a judgment, you're essentially uh, putting a filter yeah. over the other person. Right. You're you're not. Seeing them as they are—not yep. that you would be without the judgment either—but yep. at least you're removing that layer of, of of abstraction.
1: Right, and I think if we were to tie James into this, we would say that he would probably argue that it would be kind of delusional thinking to under to believe that we understand somebody else's full truth, because what we see is maybe some sort of response or reaction that is literally at best a partial one. Yeah,
2: and I think additionally, I think what James is also after. Is, many of our moral communities are set up on common allegiances uh, and also on commonality, right? That, That we share the same flag, that we share the same socioeconomics class, for example, or share something. And we oftentimes structure our moral communities around these similarities. And James, I think, is at the end of his life thinking through a different type of moral community, a wider type of moral community, which is, I think, um, to understand that all of us are going through our own personal hells or our own personal trials, and we won't ever fully understand each other. But that that difference between us is in fact the similarity. So just to understand that um, what you're going through in your anxiety and depression or what you're going through in your sort of tribulations with a relationship these tribulations are as real to you and as potentially isolating to you as sometimes I feel myself and um, I mean James was both a uh, fan of but also a critic of this very um, taken as a pessimistic philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer and Schopenhauer says something interesting at the end of studies and pessimism the first chapter of studies and pessimism he says maybe the best we can do is to be companions in misery. And what he means by this is um, maybe the best you can do is to understand that you are never going to fully, quote, get somebody else's trials and tribulations. That all you can do is to be with them in the sense that my own isolation, my own feelings of isolation are probably as real as yours. And, um... And maybe that's the common ground that we all share. Um, that's, a, that's a thought that I think James is coming to later in life. Um, and what what James does repeatedly, um, there's a story about him with Gertrude Stein, the writer Gertrude Stein, who was a, was a student of James. And Stein's going through some depression, and she wrote William James a letter on the day that uh, examination was due, and she says... Dear Professor James, I just cannot bring myself to write this exam. I am too depressed. And James writes back and he says, Dear Miss Stein, I too have felt these moments. And then he gives her an A for the final. For the final. <laughs> and I think that James' compassion is not a compassion just based on commonality, but also on difference. And I think that's a really unique position to have. Um, as a moral thinker
1: yeah and it's like he was sort of um and the way he kind of saw difference was i think incredibly important especially for his time i mean maybe i I might be wrong about this but it seemed like the sort of the empathy that he extended to others was especially i again i might be wrong about this but especially among academics i can't imagine that it was that widespread no not right not not a chance i think james was really unique i mean one of
2: one of the stories that i love about james is that when he gave his last lecture at harvard it was the largest audience that you could imagine it was a huge lecture hall everybody came not just the, not just the students in the class it was packed and at the end of that uh, the students presented him what's called a loving cup and which is like a chalice um and on that chalice, it says, the measure, in Greek, it has Protagoras' um, inscription. It says, man is the measure of all things. And they gave him this. And they loved the God. Um, and it's just a return to the, is life worth living? Maybe it depends on the liver. Mm-hmm. That's, what, that's what Protagoras is saying. Okay? Man is the measure of, man and women are the measure of all things. Mm-hmm. Um and that's not to say that there's not, that there are not aspects of life that cannot be measured, there are. Um, and that exceed, our, that exceed our expectations or our grasp, there are. James would never deny that. Yeah. But he also suggests that men and women have the ability to take life by the reins. And I think that that's what Protagoras, one of the implications of Protagoras' uh, um, quotes.
1: Yeah, and I just, I would like to also mention, so um, my college mentor, his name was Dr. Timothy Stroop, and so what was so cool about him was that he was actually this sort of William James type professor where like everybody, not only did everybody love him, he was obviously, he was also a genius, right? So we had, um, so I went to college for my undergrad to John Jay, and so they eventually ended up building these kind of, um, I guess these plaques and stones where like different teachers could pretty much buy the plaques and they would have some sort of inscription on them. And so my mentor ended up buying one. And if you actually, so he didn't actually tell us what was on it, right? So he he said like, look, if you guys want to see it, you can go see for yourself, let it be a surprise, right? Or something along those lines. And so as we kind of go out and we're looking at all of the different, like the different cobblestones, or I think that's what they were. So uh, pretty much it's different professors' names. And they would say like this person, like PhD uh, specialist and such and such. And as you could kind of go, as you would go down through them, this would pretty much be the theme. But then when you got up to his plaque, it says for all of my students, past, present and future. Tim. Timothy Stroop. That's it. No credentials, nothing. Just like he pretty much dedicated to them. So the point was for us to kind of see that most of what he did, if not all of what he did, was literally for all of us. And I think that was very similar to kind of the way I conceived of William James being a professor. I mean, I'm sure accolades meant something to him, but it seemed like more important than not was, or more important than that, rather, was literally the meaning that he found within teaching.
2: I think so too. And I mean, it, we oftentimes get the philosophy. That philosophy, in its original conception, was teaching.
3: Yeah,
2: I mean, it, it, it wasn't. It wasn't publishing. It wasn't publishing for other academics. It wasn't publishing in other peer-reviewed journals. It was not that. It was teaching. And um, one of the reasons why I find being at UMass Lowell so gratifying is that it's just a. Te- it's not just. It is a teaching job. And um, I teach undergrads. That's it. Um, and I think James expressed in this essay called "The PhD Octopus" that James published in the first first decade of the twentieth century. He says that the discipline of philosophy is going to have problems because what it's going to do is just create, you know, create a PhD octopus, which means um, that that uh, it's going to become more and more specialized that it's going to forget um, its sort of existential roots, that it's not going to speak to everyday people. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that James is fighting against. Uh, James never intended uh, his writings to be read only by other academics. Um, and I think that that's one thing that he's urging us to get out of. Yeah, so.
0: Which is great because we're uh, doing a podcast. For example, is one way to get that information out to more people. Yep. Right.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That that definitely helps. Also, uh, books. Yeah. For example, how to live a good life, and and you could, could you show the. Sure.
1: And this is six souls, healthy minds.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, being able to get books out to people to do a podcast, mm-hmm. th- these are essentially great ways of being able to now get that information out instead of it being. Just something that, you know, for example... I mean, you know that most people aren't reading peer-reviewed journals, right? right?
1: Yeah, and I don't even read them. And Right? <laughs> right, which is fine. No yeah.
0: judgment there. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, then, then how does this knowledge then kind of get down to... To the mainstream. I was going to say the masses. I I don't like to say the masses. It's an inside joke. But anyway, yeah, to to the mainstream. Right. And yeah, this is this essentially, it's, it's great. It's a great way to be able mm-hmm. to give that information out.
1: Yeah. 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 And so, John, obviously, we want to be mindful of your time and just to, again, say thank you so, so much for coming on. This was, like, really such an enlightening. Yeah, and then lighting, I guess, or lightful or insightful show. Illuminating. Illuminating. Yeah.
2: <laughs> a delightful, uh, delightful time, a delightful hour, and I'd love to come back and thank you for the invitation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just This was so incredible. I think I'm going to have to even listen back to it just to get some of the stuff that I might have missed. Yeah. So, Alan, do you have any final questions before we go back?
0: Oh, yes. Uh, John, if we wanted to follow your work online, uh, where can we find you?
2: It's johnkeg.com. Um, that's my web, website um, and then uh, John Keg is my Twitter handle or my Twitter, Twitter name yeah. and, um, and so I mean one thing that I'd say about Six Souls Healthy Minds is that there's this uh, many people won't know what this, is, this uh, um, little sketch is this mm-hmm. is a sketch that James did of himself mm-hmm. and over it he wrote uh-huh. here I and sorrow sit and many of us end up sitting that way. And James's philosophy, I think, is, um, you know, the ability or encourages us to stand straight again. So, stand straight.
1: <laughs> Thanks, Absolutely, Jim. John. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Okay. All right, Uh-oh. that
2: was awesome. That was a great show. Well, all right. So,
0: I have accidentally. <laughs> yes, I took us <laughs> away back. there. That's fine. So. Guys, if you want to follow us, follow us at seize the moment podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And at seize underscore podcast on Twitter.
1: Yep. Like, subscribe. Hit the bell on YouTube. And of course you guys can find us at the O4L Online Network under I think now it's the Seize the Moment Podcast section. So we have our own section on the show.
0: That's right. And guys don't forget we have a Patreon. The link is at the bottom of the description. If you'd like to support us, please click the link. And see you next week. See you guys next week.